This morning, I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Galatians chapter 1. Today, we are beginning a study in the book of Galatians. And I want to encourage you to take some time uh, to read the book of Galatians in preparation uh, for the things that we will be talking about over the next few months. So uh, this book is written, as you see at the beginning, it says, uh, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who were with me to the churches in Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that has been preached to you, let them be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed. This is a text that bears some stunning statements. Uh, statements that I, I hope you get the impact of. I hope they, at some level, shock you and capture your attention as you hear them. That, I think, is the kind of intention and focus of Paul. This letter is written to the churches in Galatia. That is a, uh, if you went over to uh, Italy and kind of moved towards the east, you would come to an area, a region called Galatia. So there were in Galatia a number of churches. This is a letter that's written to those churches addressing a specific problem that had arisen in the church. The relational error, as Paul writes, is tense. The letter is charged with strong, strong verbiage. It bears strong defense strong concern, and strong rebuke. A group of religious people called Judaizers, which is kind of, in Jesus' time, if I could say it this way, Jews that were on religious steroids. Okay, they were kind of hyper-rule keepers. Okay, you, you might, in our day, call them legalists. They invaded the church and influenced the theology of the gospel in the church in Galatia. The proclamation of grace and free salvation through faith in Christ alone was being undermined by their influence. They were religious teachers who found amazing grace that we love and cherish to be irritating, reckless, and ultimately a threat to their power. They emphasized strict law-keeping as a path to salvation. They were teachers who distorted the gospel of free grace by adding rule-keeping as essential to one's salvation. This is addressed in the book of Acts, Acts 15. It says, certain individuals from Judea came saying, unless you are circumcised, that is, unless you observe a Jewish ritual, you cannot be saved. And so what they did is they began to encourage the believers in Galatia to become a little Jewish in their religion, so that they could ultimately gain the full favor of God. The charge was not you have no favor from God, but you don't have all of it yet, and in some ways you don't have enough of it yet. 
And so the encouragement of rule keeping was a means by which they would add their merit to the work of Christ and in that false gospel complete what Christ has started. Okay, So they would preach that the cross work of Christ indeed was for your sin, but it is not in and of itself adequate for salvation. Now, that gets Paul a little juiced. Okay, that distortion of the gospel, that twisting and diluting of the gospel, fully captures Paul's attention. Now, the result was this. The result was that young believers, new believers in the church of Galatia, which was true of every believer at the church in Galatia, they were easily influenced. They were hungry. They were open. They were wanting to learn and to know. And so when reputed teachers came from Judea, they automatically thought that they were at some level authoritative and to be believed. These teachers sadly influenced them and bound them with obligation and guilt and left them thinking that they had to add to what Jesus had done. And in this, they stole the joy and freedom that these new believers had found in their Savior. Now, when these Judaizers came to Galatia, to a place where Paul had gone, preached the gospel, people came to faith, they formed a church. The Judaizers came to these churches in the area of Galatia, and their desire was to do two things. Because they hate the gospel of grace, they wanted to do two things. They wanted to attack the character of the preacher of the gospel of grace, in this case, Paul, the writer of this letter, And then secondly, they wanted to distort Paul's message. Here's what they would say, something like this. The gospel that Paul is preaching is a gospel of easy believism. You can come to God and have some sense of relationship with him, but you don't have to do what he says, which is a distortion of what Paul taught. What Paul said was that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that your efforts and works add nothing to what Jesus did on the cross. It is a complete and full payment for your sin. And the outworking of that salvation experience should be a changed life, right? There should be evidence or fruit in my life. What the Judaizers were saying is that fruit is essential to completing what God has already begun. And that is what Paul will later say, let that message... That the work of Christ is at some level deficient or inadequate for salvation. Be accursed of God. Strong word. So how does Paul respond to this criticism? Well, in verses 1 and 2, you find that Paul gives a personal defense. That's really what he's doing. He's kind of giving an argument. He starts by saying, Paul... An apostle. An apostle was an authoritative witness of the resurrected Christ who was taught the gospel by Christ and were given a commission from God. They were sent ones who would then communicate the true message of Christ to people who were in need of it. So the first thing Paul argues is that he is an apostle. He is in a unique class of people in the New Testament, particularly as you read through the book of Acts, you'll see an emerging group of teachers and preachers who preach the message of Christ and record the glories of the word of God. So Paul argues that he is in that class and that he did not get into that class by the vote of a group of people. He was brought into that class by the divine and sovereign will of God himself. And notice how Paul says it. 
an apostle not from men, meaning I don't come saying, here's my letter, here's my credentials. He was an apostle that God had appointed through Jesus Christ who raised him from the dead. So Paul will say, I didn't choose this life. And if you go back to the book of Acts and you study the life of the apostle Paul, you'll find that Paul was one who violently opposed the work of Christ in the church. And Christ confronted him and brought him into a personal relationship and changed his life forever. So Paul can say, I didn't choose this life. God called me to this. God obligated me to this. And so what I am doing is fulfilling the call of God in my life. Now the second thing that Paul is going to begin to talk about then is the gospel of God. So you have Paul's personal defense. Okay, I am an apostle called by God. And he'll also say, along with the brothers. And, and when, I, when I read that in verse 2, you get the sense that Paul is saying, I am, I am in relationship with other apostles who hold to this same gospel-free message of Christ. Okay, so he talks about his being selected by God, and then he is associated with those who proclaim the same gospel. That's Paul's very, it's not an extensive defense. It's just a simple statement of who he is and why he's doing what God has called him to do. Verses 3 through 5, the gospel of God. He says uh, in, a, in a very concise way, and I love this, uh, when you find one of these very simple, short summaries of gospel truth, verse 3, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And now he's going to give. Here's the concise statement. He gave himself for our sins to deliver us according to the will of God. So what is the gospel for the Apostle Paul? The gospel is the simple, powerful, and glorious message that God gave his son, Jesus Christ, for the benefit or advantage of individuals who were captured in sin so that they might be saved from it by the substitutionary work of Christ on Calvary's cross. Okay, so that's, that's the message that Paul desperately wants people to know. He wants them to know that in that message, there is, in fact, a beautiful truth of deliverance. He, Christ, gave himself for our sins to rescue us by the cross work. So notice in verse 4, he gave himself for us personally, for our sins, to deliver us. So the idea is this, this work of Christ on Calvary's cross is in and of itself sufficient and it is saving. Okay, it, it rescues people from darkness, from bondage, from addiction. It is a delivering message that comes through the work of Christ. Paul wants them to know that. What's the temptation of legalism? The temptation of legalism or religion is to move back into a rule-based relationship with God where I maintain my relationship with God by behavior. Paul says, let that be accursed. And he does it in this, just a beautiful summary. Christ gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, from the effects, devastating effects and bondage of sin. And it is according to the will of God our Father. God is in the message of the gospel. The gospel, the true gospel, is always God's gospel. So that's the second thing that Paul lays out. When you understand that the gospel is a message of deliverance, you understand that before I knew Christ, I was helpless and lost. I did not need a teacher 
And folks, if you study world religions, what you will find is most world religions focus on a teacher who tells you a path but does nothing to help you on the path. And the distinguishing trait of biblical Christianity, which if it is true, in contrast to all other religions, there must be something about it that sets it apart. And here's what sets it apart. The teacher did something for you on Calvary's cross. In fact, it's so clear in this text, isn't it? He gave himself to rescue you from your sin and its consequence. That's how glorious the message is, and that is the message for which Paul is willing to go to the mat. In Christ's work, we were saved from the penalty and the enslaving power of sin. He is a deliverer, not just from the consequence, but from the lifestyle. He aims at transformation, whole life transformation. That's the aim of the gospel that Paul is proclaiming and that God had given to him. And this saving work of Christ is apart from religious observance or personal contribution. This is Paul's simple statement of why he is not a Judaizer. Why he does not say that you are saved by behavior, but instead by the beautiful, wonderful grace of God. The result in this text is found at the beginning of verse 3. Grace and peace. You know when you sin, you know what you sense in your heart? You sense guilt, which ultimately is hostility towards God. I've been a rebel. I've been a rebel. And through the grace of God, the Bible says when we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness through the blood of Christ. He is able to bring you from guilt and bondage into freedom and hope and to lead you by grace into a sanctified life and increasingly like Jesus' life. That's what the gospel does. And I love what happens next. Verse 5 is kind of a detour from the main topic. But for Paul, it's unavoidable. Verse 5, he says, To him be glory forever and ever. Oh, yes. See, folks, when you understand, when you meditate on the gospel, the thing it will always do, it won't produce you saying to others, get your act together. It will always encourage praise going Godward and upward. That's what the gospel does. So any any religion, any works-based righteousness that ultimately praises people for living a good life is contrary by definition to the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace moves in your direction when you're an enemy of God, when you were a sinner in rebellion. He moves in, grabs you, changes you, brings you to repentance and faith and changes your life. And Paul says, when I think about that, how that worked in my personal life, Paul says, I cannot help but praise God. Two years ago, I had the privilege of going to the Grand Tetons, rode motorcycles through there, through Rocky Mountain National Yellowstone. For me, I I could not look. I was with four other guys, uh, two of whom I had never met, one I knew kind of loosely. I I was in front as we kind of came into this beautiful vista. And I did not think to myself, that's beautiful, give thanks. It just happened. It just happened. Driving a motorcycle, I point, I realize my bike is slowing down because I let go of the throttle. And I pointed, what was I doing in praise of the one who made that? Look at that, and look at that, and look at that. That's what Paul's saying. When I meditate on the gospel of God's saving grace, free, unmerited, undeserved, 
life-changing, liberating. He said, I just want to say, oh, yes, praise God. Just let that flow from inside of you. The gospel focus that Paul entertains momentarily in eight to ten words leads to an explosion of praise in honor of the one who had given himself for Paul's salvation. Verses six through nine enter us into the tension of the text. So you find Paul's, here's who I am, an apostle of Christ. Secondly, I am here to proclaim the good news of Christ is that he went to the cross for the advantage of rebels to rescue them, save them, forgive them, and change them forever to make them children of God. But now there's a tension. Here's what Paul says in verse six. In light of this glorious gospel and the fact that some are trying to twist it, Paul says, I am astonished that you believers are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Paul is, I heard someone say this word, I didn't look it up, but do you know the word nonplussed, unimpressed? Paul says, I I'm baffled. Why would you leave a feast to go to McDonald's? Well, I actually do that a lot, but... Like, why would you do that? Why would you leave a banquet table and go to a lunch bag? That's, that's what Paul's saying. He says, I, I honestly don't get it. There must be, on the part of these new believers, a, a lack of apprehending, laying hold of the fullness of the gospel. And I think that's what it is. They came to trust the gospel that Paul preached, which was that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried and rose again the third day. They, they trusted that and were brought into the family of God. Paul calls them here brothers. They're in the family. But they're struggling with apprehending the, how amazing this grace is. Paul says, I know it's so amazing that I can't talk about it without taking a detour and say, praise God, oh yes. And so as he writes to them, he writes saying, I am astonished. I am perplexed. I'm in a, I'm in a state of dismay. I'm troubled that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. God showed you, opened your eyes to the grace of God in Christ and changed your life. And what is Paul doing? He's arguing that they should not go back to the old way. Don't go back to church. Don't go back to religion. Don't go back to performance. It is a dead-end street which will always leave you buried in bondage and guilt. You see, true freedom is only found in Jesus And Paul's going to say two things. Verse 6, he says, uh, I am astonished that you were so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Here's Paul's first explanation of the teaching of the Judaizers. Here's what Paul says. It is not the gospel. It is a different gospel. It is in contrast to or contrary to the gospel that God had given to the apostles to teach, record, and preach. But it is so attractive, isn't it? Don't you love a good day? Don't you love a day when your behavior has been spot on, when you responded to your wife in gracious ways and you were kind and she called you honey and you called her love and dear and everything's so good and you kneel down beside your bed that night to pray and you're like, God, I am here. Your son is here. I know you were waiting for me because I had a good day. It's how we think. And it's a bad way to think. 
because it doesn't reckon with reality in a fallen, dark world. You see, a good day appeals to my pride. And I subtly believe on certain days that it actually recommends me to God. It, it, it causes God to want to hear. It inclines him towards me. Whereas if I've had a bad day, I don't even want to pray. That's false gospel. It's the telltale sign of it. That when I have a bad day, God loves me less. Not true. Not true. Verse 7, Paul says, this gospel that the Judaizers and religious people teach, he says, not that there is another one, meaning there is no other gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So what is the message that they're sharing? It is a perverted gospel, a twisted, or the word literally means it's a reversed gospel. It moves away from the sufficiency of the cross work of Christ to my effort, performance, and effort as saving in effect. And it is that that Paul jumps in the face of. You see, the real problem in the false gospel is that it basically can be summarized in this statement. Christ's work plus my effort equals rescue or salvation. Paul's real problem with the Judaizers is the thing that really jazzed them and, and caused them to be so hostile to him is that Paul was saying that strict religious observance of the false teachers was no gospel, which is to say their circumcision, their rituals, their observances, their kosher food, all of that has no saving or redeeming value and never brings hope to sinners. You want to get yourself in trouble with religious people? Tell them you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. I'll tell you that. People say, oh, you're a pastor, you're religious. I said, au contraire. I am not religious. If I was trusting in religion, I would be damned, and rightfully so. I would be accursed of God, and rightfully so, because that is exactly what I deserve one writer said it this way. He said, we are too sinful to contribute to our salvation. His grace plus nothing equals my rescue. And that's why Paul says, oh, praise him. Oh, yes. Amen. Because on my bad day, I need the true gospel. I don't need self-salvation. It doesn't work on a bad day. I need God's grace. And for me, every day is a bad day. You see, what Paul is doing is combating a word that many people in church life know, the word legalism. Here's what I want you to do. If you've never heard the word legalism, if you've never heard that word, raise your hand. Go ahead. If you've never heard that word. Okay. All right. There's a few that haven't. Okay. If, if you've been heavily churched, okay, you've probably heard the word legalism. I want to help you to understand this word because I think legalism is the issue that Paul is combating. Okay. So see if I can help you with this. I'm a pastor, okay, and I, I'm bivocational, so I work out on the street with contractors, drywallers, painters, concrete guys. I work with all different kinds of people. It's an interesting world. And there's an assumption when they finally find out that I'm a pastor, okay, because I kind of really stay clandestine. I, one guy said to me the other day, so you don't act like a pastor, you don't look like a pastor. I'm like, 
Okay? Like, I don't know what they look like. But you're looking at one, okay? It's usually followed by this, by an apology and a protest. People often say to me, well, I'm not religious. And I'm thinking to myself, no kidding. Why, why that apology? Why that, and that apology is not an apology, it's a defensive behavior. It's a justification for the life the individual is living. And this started to hit me, and I, I've cultivated different responses. Someone curses around me, oh, Pastor, I'm sorry, I should have never said that. You don't answer to me. I'm not your savior. I'm not good enough. But why do people offer this apology, and why do they protest? They assume Listen to this. They assume that I believe that their chances of a relationship with God are threatened by their bad language, by their joking, by their lusting, whatever it may be. They assume that I as a pastor believe that their chance of a relationship with God is deeply wounded by their bad behavior. And when they say to me, I'm not religious, here's what I say to people. That's one step in the right direction. Because religion for a sinner self-effacing, that's what they're saying to me. It's an apology. It's a protest. I know my behavior is not as good as yours. I know it's not meritorious. I know it's not effective. I know it's not good. And I say to them, that's fine. Do you know who Jesus loves? Do you know who Jesus came to die for? He came to rescue people in need of rescue. You know, I was a lifeguard. When I went, I know I don't look like a lifeguard, okay? But I was a lifeguard, all right? My wife looks like a lifeguard. She was a lifeguard, okay? So when I was a lifeguard, here's what we were taught. You don't jump into the pool to rescue someone who is flailing at, above the water. They're not drowning. They may think they are, but they are not ready for rescue until they surrender. You know what religion does? It causes people to flounder, knowing that they're going down. It's not until I realize that I am desperately in trouble that I will truly call out for saving and for rescue and for help and for hope. Paul would say of himself, in my religious state, in, in Paul, and Paul, Paul can say in Philippians, I strictly adhere to the law. I kept the word of God. Every, every command. Paul could say in a legalistic sense, in the technical sense, I followed every law. It's what he says. But you know what he says in this text? You know what he says in other texts? He says, I, in that religious state of rule-keeping, was the chiefest of sinners. You say to yourself, come on. No, what is Paul saying? Paul's saying, in my effort to self-justify by obedience, I was denying and belittling the cross of Christ. I was elevating myself as my Savior. And that changes everything in how you live. It makes you proud it makes you condescending. It makes you judgmental when you believe that you are your own savior. It wasn't until Paul came to realize, I am the chiefest of sinners. I am more desperately in need of God's grace through Christ than I ever realized. And God, in his grace, through faith alone, will take me to heights that I could never imagine. See, Paul thought he was at the top of the pile. He says in Philippians, I was very religious. And he says, I count that as rubbish, as something to be discarded and disdained because it attacks the crosswork of Christ and seeks to destroy it. 
So what is legalism then? Okay, so we come back to this word. What is legalism? Legalism is, and I'm going to give you a negative definition first, which I know I shouldn't do, okay? Legalism is not having rules for life. If you've been Christianized, if you've been around the church, people tend to say, Tim Hoff is a legalist because he won't watch R-rated movies. Okay, that, that's, that, that'd be like a rule, right? I'm not, I'm not affirming or denying what I just said. Okay, it's illustrative, all right? Therefore, okay, he's a better person than me. That's what legalism does. Okay, so legalism is, it, it's not having rules for life. You should have rules for life. The Bible is full of rules for Christian living, right? Love one another from the heart. Be earnestly devoted to each other. Forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. It's full of rules. Guard your eyes. Don't lust. Don't steal. Don't cheat. Be honest at work. Love your wife. It's full of rules. So you can't say that legalism is... When if, look, I have a Mennonite friend. Okay, His name is Ezra Martin. He drew all the prints for this building for $20,000. Okay, it should have been about $120,000. Don't tell him if you meet him. Okay. okay, Ezra Martin is a Mennonite who loves Jesus. Ezra Martin wears dark navy blue, blue pants. Ezra Martin wears a light blue buttoned-up shirt, long sleeve every day. Ezra Martin loves Jesus Christ more than me. Because he doesn't believe that his rules save him. He believes it's a way that he honors God. Does that make sense? If he looks at me and says, Tim, you must wear a light blue button-down shirt and blue dicky pants in style. And if you don't, you're not as good as me. Then I'm going to call him out. You follow me? When you think that the way I dress or the car I drive, blacked out bumpers and blacked out wheels, in some way recommends me to God or causes God to be more inclined to love me, then you are falling into the trap of legalism, thinking that I am saved by my rule keeping. So legalism is not rule having. Legalism is salvation through rule keeping. Does that make sense? So I know uh, the ladies from the Hubbing Home are here today. You guys have rules at the home, right? And it's wise. In your context, they're, they're, you're protecting people. You're being cautious about certain things. And, but you're not saying that if you keep these rules, now you can have a relationship with God. But if you fail to keep the rules when you live here, you don't have a relationship with God. To do that would be to distort and destroy the gospel and to bind people's consciences thinking that if I don't behave in the way that I behaved at the Hoving Home, then I'm not a Christian. Or I may be in jeopardy of losing my salvation, which Christ purchased and gave me as a gift. So, so legalism is the thought that my good behavior changes my relationship with God. Okay? Legalism focuses on what you do. The gospel of Christ focuses on what God has done. Does that make sense? That's what Paul talks about early on. I'm saved by the grace of God that is revealed at the cross where Christ gave himself for me freely, undeserved, unmerited. He gave himself to change my life forever. That's beautiful news for sinners. And it's why Paul can say, oh, how I praise God 
who rescued me from my sinful, religious mindset that prompted pride and bondage. He broke the chains of that. We sang this morning, now I'm dancing on my chains. If you want chains to dance on, dance on the chains of legalism. Dance on the bondage that causes you to think that God loves me more because I live well. It will make you proud and intolerable. Man, I don't want to be around you because I'm not that good. You know what's amazing about this text? I'm preaching you a gospel message today, right? Guess who the gospel message is written to? It's written to believers. Paul to the brothers of Christ in Galatia, to you. You know what we often think? That teaching on the gospel is good because my friend might come to church today and they don't know Jesus and since pastor is preaching the gospel today, that's good. Well, it is good, but it's also good for you as a believer because I have a creeping tendency. I have, a, I have in my life the creep of legalism. I'm not saying I'm a creep, okay? But the creep of legalism lives in me. I like a good day. Hi, honey. When I was a little kid, I was this way. I would go home. If, if I had a good day after school with my mom and my brothers and my dad, came, I was like, hey, dad, good to see you. I've been a good boy. <laughs> and the assumption is what? You're going to love me more today. I'm going to experience more of your affection today. That's how we think. In fact, it's how we're formed. That's why every parent should know that when your kid falls into sin, you relate to them as a broken rebel, to a broken rebel. And that will change how you discipline your children, how you love them and encourage them back into the grace of God. You won't scream at them and belittle them. You will call them to righteousness out of a broken heart. In Philippians 3, when Paul talks about Judaizers, here's what he says. He says, I tell you, with tears, they are enemies of the cross. That's strong. You know, I love this. When Paul calls out religious people, he's not condemning them. He's saying with tears to deny the gospel of grace is to condemn yourself. It is to be accursed from God. I beg you, come into relationship with God. Come to know him. And Paul's appealing to people that were just like himself. He knew what it was to be religious and deeply broken. Last thing that you see in verses 8 to 9 is Paul's strong response. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preached, let him be accursed. Accursed means anathema, to be separated from God. It means to be cursed. And then he, he says it again, as we have said before. So now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Why? Why so strong? Why such a, 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 why such a heavy, loaded word? Because to distort the gospel of God's grace is the worst thing that I could possibly do for someone. Because, folks, understand this. In the gospel of grace, Jesus Christ was hung on a cross and became a, Galatians will later say, a curse for us. So to try to punish myself and redeem myself through religious rituals and legalism is not a hopeful path. 
And in fact, it denies and ultimately destroys the gospel. So in 6 and 7, Paul can say, it's not another gospel. In fact, it is a perverted gospel. It leads people down a road that goes to eternal condemnation. That's why Paul is so serious. That's why he calls out so strongly. He was concerned about God's gospel, not a people's approval ratings. You go to verse 10, what does he say? Am I seeking the approval of men? If I'm still seeking the approval of men, I can't have God's approval. Paul says the message I'm preaching is not to win favor. It's to win souls. It's to redeem people from their brokenness and sinfulness. Folks, here's what I hope today. I hope you come to understand the gospel in a fresh, stronger way so that tomorrow morning you cannot help but speak the words of life. I pray that you will be so enriched in understanding of Christ and so, so passionately in love with Christ and so grateful for the deep, deep love of Jesus that you can't keep it quiet, that you have to share it. It's good news and it must be shared. And Paul can say, I was called to please Christ. And so I boldly and passionately proclaim the gospel of his salvation. So here's two simple, a couple simple applications of this text for you to keep in mind as you go. One is, if you've never read this book, does this seem like a weird transition? This book will help you to understand what Paul's talking about in Galatians. If you want a companion book to read, it's called Martin Luther by Eric Metaxas. I read this a month ago. Tim Hoff does not read 500-page books. I read this book, okay, and it helped me to understand the gospel and the Reformation, what, what happened as Martin Luther in the 1500s read the book of Galatians and understood, what the heck am I thinking? He read it and he understood that there was no hope in religion, that hope is found by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. That's what he learned as he read the book of Galatians. That's what we hope will sink into your hearts, a great appreciation for the liberating, free, true gospel of Christ. So I encourage you to read the book, and if you've never seen the movie Luther, it will help you to grasp the application of the message I'm giving you today. So I would encourage you to go and watch uh, that movie. Bring it up on Netflix or something and watch it. So here's two very simple concluding thoughts then. Since the gospel is so important and so easily perverted and often and frequently abandoned in our lives, number one, I must get the gospel straight. I must understand it in truth. So I encourage you, read the book of Galatians. Get to the heart of what Paul's saying. Understand how your salvation occurred, how beautiful and more glorious than you ever dared imagine the gospel of free saving grace is. Let it settle in to your heart. Let it begin to change you. Know it and know it in contrast to your tendency to legalism. Sinclair Ferguson said this. He said our great temptation in the Christian life is to smuggle performance, rule keeping, into the work of grace. So we know we're saved by grace, but we like to drag a little, along a little baggage of good works so that we feel like we've done our part. Okay, and so we're, we tend to be smugglers. Can I provoke your thinking? If you're tempted to think that God is more inclined to assist, you, to assist you in your need, that is, is obligated because you had a good day, you're a smuggler. You're a smuggler. If I am tiffed at my wife or upset with my kids, if I lose my wallet and, then, and, and, and back into a car, I figure what? I deserved it. Right? I did bad, bad things happen. 
you're a smuggler. If you struggle financially and think that because you did not give enough to God's work, that God is holding back from you, you're a smuggler. If you think that you can't pray because you had a messed up with relationship with your wife that day or with your kids or if you lusted, were fearful or greedy. If I believe that when I get my act together, God will bless my job, my kids, my marriage, my life, my desire for a mate. Uh, the creep of legalism has begun and you're becoming a smuggler. I want to bring my good works in to what God is doing. Paul says, none of this. Grace says that he loves you and called you just as you are and wants you to progress in righteousness in his grace so that at the end of the day, when there is notable or measurable progress in my life, God gets all of the glory and praise goes to him alone. So get the gospel straight because once you get it straight, then I want to encourage you to do something. Treasure it. Treasure it so much that you can't contain it. Hold it close. Love it. Sing it. That's what we try to do at our church, is to teach the gospel of God in everything we do and to sing the gospel of God so that as you sing, your heart is rising to new heights of love and passion for God so you can't contain it. And you begin to say, oh, praise the one who gave his life for me. May God so richly transform and bless us. The key is gospel-saturated and gospel-driven everything. It is the driver for how you work. It is the driver for how you represent Christ and his gospel in your marriage. It is what drives how you stay married. It, is, it drives how you parent. It drives how you, teach your, how you treat your neighbor. It drives how you deal with injury and offense. Grace known and treasured is grace practiced. If I don't know it and treasure it, I'm going to find that all around me are broken relationships, judgmentalism, and division. The gospel of God's grace changes everything. Have you ever thought to yourself why the song Amazing Grace is so popular? you ever thought about that? I thought about it this week, and I thought to myself, I don't think Amazing Grace is perhaps one of the most popular songs in the world because it is such an amazing tune. You understand what I'm saying? Like, I don't think it's that musically that song is just, that's a beautiful tune. It's, it's very simple, right? Here's what I believe. I believe in the heart of people. There is a desire for the true gospel. Here's what I believe. I believe people love to hear that song sung, even if they're not believers, even if they don't believe in God. Here's what I believe. I believe they wish it was true. With all my heart, I believe that when they hear that song, it's the song they always wanted to hear. That there's hope for a wretch like me. And even if it's not believed, they want to treasure that kind of truth. That's why people go looking for acceptance. That's why people join Jeep clubs and guitar clubs and basket weaving clubs. And What are they looking for? Acceptance. Approve of me. Only in the gospel do I find ultimate acceptance, ultimate hope, ultimate peace, ultimate freedom, ultimate bondage. That's why it is amazing grace. The next time you listen to the song, I encourage you, think, do you know it's true? Have you trusted Christ? Or do you want it to be true? Do you need to come to repent and to place saving faith in the shed blood 
of Christ and his gracious work. And when you know him, it will drive everything you do. It'll drive your social work. It'll drive your relationships with brothers in Christ. It'll drive your marriage. It'll drive your relationship with your kids. His grace, as we sung this morning, changes everything, including me. Father, for your grace this morning, we thank you. For your amazing love and rich, deep, undeserved favor in Jesus Christ, thank you. Lord, as we drive down the road of life and as we behold in our hearts the grand vistas of salvation and saving grace, those high points of the gospel, I pray, God, that we will point them out to those around us. That we will always let them know that even if you're not religious and even if you don't know anything from the word of God, I pray that we will be willing to share with them that there is hope for every person, in spite of what they've done, in spite of their background, in spite of their past. And Father, I pray that we as your church would encourage and call and draw people through the love of Christ to know him as Savior and Lord. Bless as we sing our closing song. God, cement in our hearts this truth that Jesus changes everything and that grace is amazing. Help us as we sing. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen.